The following message was recorded at Fountain of Life Fellowship in Fountain Valley, California. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com. This morning's scripture reading is from the book of Philippians, uh, chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, found on page 980 of your chair Bibles. For those of you who are with us today who don't have a Bible and would like one, please take the one in front of you as our gift to you. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of the Lord. Good to see you. Yeah, I'm really glad to be here with you this morning. Hey, didn't our, uh, didn't our worship team do a good job this morning? Can we give them a hand? Thankful for their, their service to us. Let's pray. Ask for God's help. Heavenly Father, we love you so much, and um, we're so thankful to come and hear you speak. And we pray, Lord, we ask you that in your mercy towards us, you'd send the Holy Spirit in it. A better sermon than I could ever preach would come from him into our minds and into our hearts. Help us see what you want to show us about who you are, what you've done for us in Christ, and who we are, what you're doing in us through him. And let it be true of every one of us, Lord, that we have seen Jesus and heard from him today and are changed. We pray this in his name for his glory. Amen. So as, as I was uh, preparing the message today, I couldn't help but realize that f 15 years ago, almost to the date, I preached this same passage. <clears throat> and uh, I was a brand new pastor. I was into probably my second month, <clears throat> excuse me, of preaching. And so thankfully that message has been lost forever. <clears throat> Amen. And some of you, remarkably, have been here <clears throat> since then and ever since and are still Christians. So, <laughs> praise God. Yeah. Sorry, I, gotta, I got something in my throat. <clears throat> so, I do remember at about that same time getting a, a note. And that note said, I should quit talking about theology and only talk about love. <clears throat> and so, uh, that note certainly gave me the idea that theology and love don't go well together. And as a brand new pastor, you get a letter like that, and you, you have to think about it. What do you think? Um, and you know, I, I couldn't help but think, today our cultural moment loves this idea that theology doesn't help love, and takes it even further than I think that person who wrote the, the note ever meant to. Have you ever seen one of these, the coexist bumper sticker? Now, I, I want to tell you that from one point of view, I absolutely agree with the bumper sticker. In that, I'm, I'm totally against violence or persecution in the name of religion. I hope you are too. Um, of course, we should strive to live together in a peaceful society, a civil society, even despite disagreements. I hope you would agree. By the way, your theology probably tells you that. <laughs> okay? But from another point, I'm not sure that's the main point of this bumper sticker. The spirit of the bumper sticker, it seems to me, and I, I hear a lot of it, 
is, hey, religions are basically the same. They're about love. Let's not sweat the details. Again, it's the same idea. Less theology, less theological details would enable more love. Theology doesn't help love. It's, it's a common, a common idea. What is theology? I'm using this academic word on you. It, it's, it's really not that complicated. It's what you believe about God. True theology is what's true about God. Theology, study of God. It's a, it's, your, it's a statement of what God is like, what he's done, what he wants. And by the way, everyone has a theology. You have a theology. What you believe about God. Even if your theology is, I'm not sure and don't really care. Okay. That's your theology. Can't be known. It doesn't matter. So the big question is, is your theology true? And does it inspire love? So here we need to admit the horrible reality. Isn't it easy to have your formal theology correct to a point and be horribly unloving simultaneously? It's easy. Formal theology, what I mean by that is like, how would you fill out the survey? How would you write your statement of faith, what you say you believe, your formal theology? Isn't it, isn't it true that you could get that fairly close, or you could get that correct, and be horribly unloving? Just because you get the answers right doesn't mean you're a loving person. Isn't that true? Christians prove that to be true every day, and namely, I prove that to be true every day. You proved that to be true this week, somehow, probably. So just because our answers are correct it doesn't mean we're loving. So theology formal doesn't necessarily make us loving people. That was also true of the church in Philippi. That's why Paul's writing this passage. They struggle with division and strife, even though their theology is sound, generally speaking. And yet, here in chapter 2, you know, we saw last week, the end of chapter 1, Paul has said to them as a community, walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. We remember the gospel is that beautiful news of the person and the work of Jesus, who he is and what he's done. And if you believe this, Paul says, it, it brings you into community, and we, we want to live this out together. We want to walk as, as citizens of the gospel. This is our new identity, our new group, our new culture. Based on Jesus and what he's done, we want to walk in a manner worthy of that. And into the beginning of chapter 2, he's talking about how you do this together in community life. What does it look like in our life together to accomplish this? And Paul's push is a deep, loving unity. That's what he wants. Didn't you hear it? He wants a deep, loving unity. And doesn't that sound great? Who's against that? A deep, loving unity? You want to be a part where people love one another, are kind to one another, put one another's interests as important to them, and there's harmony, and there's peace, and there's joy? Anybody into that? I don't really know anyone who's down with community. No, we like that, but you tell me. You've seen what happens in churches. You've seen what happens in families. You maybe have been a part of it. Unity is hard. It's hard. That's why we have to make coexist bumper stickers. We're mean to each other. And, and the fact that it happens in the church shows you just how bad it is universally. Wow. So, the, so what then can motivate us to foster a deep loving unity? What's going to do it? What can move us in that direction? And Paul's you're going to see this. Paul's method for moving Christians towards unity is going to be the most incredible, wonderful, awe-inspiring statement of theology the, word, the world has ever seen. But it's not just formal theology he wants. He wants you to know the details of the theology. Absolutely, it doesn't work without it. But he wants an actual theology, where the theology you say you believe becomes a theology you feel, the theology that melts your heart, the theology that motivates you. 
And when theology hits your heart, that actually stirs up the greatest, the greatest acts of love that could ever be possible in our lives. God willing, this will happen for us this morning. As we look at this text, we're going to see it in four points. I want to give it to you like this. The should, the struggle, the sharing, and the servant. The should, the struggle, the sharing, and the servant. First of all, the should. The should. Look at what Paul calls the church to do. Verse 2. Verse 2. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being of full, in full accord, and of one mind. What does Paul want for the church? What does he want in the church? Well, it's four punches at basically the same idea, isn't it? Deep unity. So being of the same mind, this is not talking about robot thinking where you think exactly the same way in every detail. It's not what the word means. It's not even talking about an emphasis on doctrine specifically. Again, that's not the issue for the Philippians. Their doctrine's good, and still they have division. It's the mind, the mind here is an attitude or an inclination. It's an emphasis of the heart where unity for you is a conviction. It's precious to you. Be of the same mind. Then he says, have the same love. And that probably means you should have the same love for all the believers in your whole church. You know how division goes, right? These are my super church friend people, and these are my, they're obnoxious, they don't get it right, church friend people. Stop. Stop. This is our church, saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. The same love. Have the same love. It doesn't mean you can be best friends with every person. That doesn't work, humanly speaking. But in your mind, in your attitude, you love everybody, and you love the whole. Give the same love. So have the same mind, have the same love. Then he says, be in full accord. Uh, you could, uh, a literal translation might say, be one-souled. One-souled, unified in, in passion for unity. It's, it's, it's the idea that you're going to invest in unity. That's a struggle for us in the Western church. Church equals, hey, I went for 45 minutes, and isn't that cool? Didn't talk to anybody, know anybody, serve any. I went, is that cool? Well, it's good. It's better than not going. Is it deep unity? Be one soul, passion for unity. And then he says it again, and of one mind. This mind word dominates this text. This attitude, this inclination, this emphasis of heart. Do you hear the should? Hey, if you trust Jesus Christ, what should your church life be like? A deep loving unity. Do you hear it? Aren't you thankful for the ways God has given that to us here at Fountain of Life? I'm thankful. It's here. I praise God for it. I thank, I thank you for your efforts in it. But have we arrived? Have mercy. No, right? Have mercy. No. And just when you think you have arrived, <laughs> you remember how quickly things can crash all around you. Someone you were so high on and was so great 30 seconds ago is now wicked. <laughs> and you're offended. It dies so quickly. So how do we do it? Well, before we get there, let's think about why it's so hard. Because Paul's going to give you two reasons it's so hard for you and so hard for me and so hard for everyone. Look at verse 3. This is our struggle. The struggle. Verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. So just the obvious first. How many things... Thinking, feeling, acting, saying, should you do from selfish ambition or conceit? How many? None. Okay, now just go ahead and do an equation. How many things do you do feeling, thinking, saying, acting out of selfish ambition or conceit? Might take you a while to do the math. Selfish ambition, that's the first thing that gets away. 
Paul's so rhetorical in these passages. He's using unique Greek words, so we've, we've got to I gotta try to flesh them out a little bit. The Greek word under selfish ambition here has the idea of trying to get votes so that you can win an election. Oh, that speaks to me. It's this desire you have to put yourself forward and to get other people to see you in a certain way and put their vote in. You need these votes. You need to see yourself in a certain way. You need others to see it. Friends, what is it that you need people to see about you? What is your selfish ambition? Don't be content to say, oh, I don't have that problem. <laughs> I mean, you have the problem. I have the problem. I remember uh, some people who are like, I don't care what people think about me. And I want to ask, how much do you care that people know that you don't care what people think about you? <laughs> they care. Interesting. I need the vote. I need to be seen as righteous. I need to be seen as theologically sound. I need to be seen as capable, gifted, talented, kind, intellectual, progressive, a bold leader, competent, mature, valuable, independent. There's a million flavors. But what's the vote you're longing for from others? And when we don't get the votes, we're hurt. We handle that hurt in so many ways. For some of us, maybe it depends on your personality. You're just not going to come around. You're not going to be involved because you don't get that vote that you need of being valuable, being whatever. For others, it's going to turn into quarreling. You're going to fight for your rights. You're going you're to get out. You're going to get louder. You're going you're to make sure people, okay, same problem. Selfish ambition. Why do we do this? The next word is just outstanding, and it's worth unpacking for the sake of this passage. So let's try on our Greek. I'm not a Greek expert, and neither are you, but that's okay. Everybody say, kenodoxa. Can you try that? Kenodoxa. One more time. Kenodoxa. Look at you. You're scholars. It's amazing. ESV, look at this. The ESV gives it to you as conceit. The NIV gives it to you as vain conceit. The King James may actually win this one. Vain glory. And it comes from two different words. Kenosis, which is such an important word for this passage. And it means empty. To empty. To be empty. And then doxa. Glory. So you put these two things together and it's really an amazing word. This is the only time this word is used in the New Testament. Empty glory. Empty of glory. So what's glory? It's beauty or value or weight or worth. And you, you're trying to get votes to show you have a, a glory. But it's empty. It's empty. Your striving after it is vain and empty because what you're trying to show others is vain and empty. The reality, and it haunts us, is that we are our glory is empty. We are empty of glory. Remember the story of Adam and Eve way back in the garden? They fall into sin. They realize they're naked and they're ashamed. You realize what they, remember what they start to do? Try to cover it with fig leaves. That's us. We're walking around in our hand-sewn fig leaf suits saying, check out my leaf suit. Look at me. I'm, I'm a, look at my glory. It's, it's vain. That's a leaf suit. You can't see it. We see it. I can't see it. You see it. Empty glory. Boasting, of, try, trying to fill it, trying to find it, be enough, be good enough, be valuable. Tim Keller had a great illustration on this. He said, so say, say you met someone and they were just obsessed with their knee. Say I was up here just going, check out my knee. Do you see? How it holds me up here? Do you see how when I need it to? Look, it bends. I can sit. I can stand. I can run. I can do the Stairmaster thing at the gym. Have you noticed my knee? And all of you would think, that's very odd. Why is he talking about his knee like this? And then you say, oh, you know what? Maybe it was injured. And now it's improved. 
Oh, that would make sense. Why are you obsessing over yourself? Look at me. I'm smart. I'm intellectual. I'm progressive. I'm tolerant. I'm, I'm attractive. I'm young. I'm old. I'm wise. I'm righteous. I'm, 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 look at me. Why are you obsessing over yourself? You must be injured. You must be injured. That's what the word says. Your glory is empty. You're seeking for glory is empty. You feel the emptiness. You long for the glory. It's vain. It's smoke. It's vapor. It's lost. And this selfish ambition, longing for votes from this vain, empty glory, rots out our unity. It ruins our unity. We, we can't do it. We quarrel, we fight, we're jealous, we don't forgive, we're bitter, we're hurt, we're outsiders. We're... That's our struggle. Look what we need, verse 3. Verse 3, here's what we need. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in, what's the magic word? Humility. We need humility. It's the opposite of this self-promoting empty glory. The word means modesty, littleness, lowliness of mind that focus, focuses on not self. A lowliness that focuses on not self. It's interesting that this word is used in Greco-Roman culture outside the Bible only for slaves. It is not a cultural value of the time. To be humble. You wouldn't want to be like this. You want to be feared, respected, but not humble. And yet the Christian worldview and movement began to have this radical change where now this word that is used outside of the New Testament in the time always as, as insulting, as an incredible value. What do we want? Humility. Humility. It's not self-hatred. You, you see that in verse 4. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, which, what does that assume? Should you look to your own interests? Yes. Yes. But not only to your own interests. Where else should you look? But also to the interests of others. This is the amazing thing about humility. Humility. You think about pride, what are you looking at when you're prideful? Self. Give me the votes. You think about insecurity, what are you looking at when you're insecure? Self. I'm no good. In either case, what are you looking at? Self. And then in humility, look at the miracle. All of the sudden, a whole new world, and there's others. Pride and humility knew they were others, but we use others to get the votes. Haven't you done this? Haven't you met somebody? Oh, that could be a connection for me to get me the, oh, I like this person. They're encouraging because they make me feel the, oh, and this is the, haven't you seen a selfish use of relationships in your life? You're still looking at self. Humility, it's not so much thinking about or thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself Less. Uh, there's others. What a glorious world. There's a God. Eyes off self. Think about something greater and more beautiful than your Kenadoxa empty glory. Than your vote chasing. Eyes off this and on to something else. And isn't what, that, what Paul is doing here? He says, church, I want a deep unity from you. I want you to think about your struggle that keeps you from that. It's this selfish ambition. It's this conceit. And instead of looking at yourselves, part of this is you're going to be looking at others. And you can do that. Why, church? Because you're going to look at him. Look at the sharing now. Paul has wanted to inspire this church towards unity 
by reminding them of what they've shared. Verses 1 to 2. If you're a Christian, I hope these ideas resonate with you. I hope there was times in your life where you felt this. I hope it's a reality in your life now. If you're not a Christian, we would hope you, this would attract you to Christ. So Paul says, and it's kind of a rhetorical question, right? He says to the Philippians, So if there's any encouragement in Christ, and what would they say? You know, is there any encouragement in Christ? And what would Christ's people say? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Have you known this encouragement? You belong. You can make it. God is for you. You're loved. Be encouraged. Have you, have you had that encouragement? Yeah, there's encouragement in Christ. Uh, number two, if there's any comfort from love. Hey, Philippians, is there any comfort from God's love? Well, what would every Christian say? Oh, goodness, to know that God loves you. Is that's the comfort, that's the balm that can heal and get you through anything. That, that God is mindful of you and cares about you. He loves you. Is there comfort from that? He's not going to quit on you. It's going to be okay. All things work together for good. He loves you. Is there any comfort from love? Every Christian would say, yes, yes. If, is there any participation in the Spirit? That participation, fellowship. Sharing, that's what that word means, sharing. Is there any sharing in the Spirit? Do you get to share the love of the Father through the Son and the power of the Spirit? Have you ever shared that with brothers and sisters in Christ? Is there any participation in the Holy Spirit? What would every Christian say? Yeah. Is there any affection and sympathy? Remember Paul in his prayer, I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ. That was chapter one. Because Christ has affection for you. He has compassion for you, sympathy for you. Have you felt that ever? I hope you've known it. And what would every Christian say at some point? It, it, does this exist in Christ? Every Christian would have to say, yes. Do you see where he got their eyes? Where's, where were their eyes in selfish ambition and conceit? Right here. And where did he jerk their chin to? Do you remember the blessings of Christ? Do you remember what he's done for you? Remember how you've shared that? Do you have this, Paul would say to them? And they'd say, yeah. And then the next move is, can you give it? Remember? Remember something bigger than you? Can you give that to others? Remember? Remember this grace towards you that you didn't deserve? Can you offer that to others? He gets their eyes onto that so it can be off themselves so they can have this deep unity. Remember the sharing and of course, how did you get it? Christian, how did you get into a world where you have the sympathy and compassion of Christ? How did you get into a life where you have comfort from his love and encouragement in Christ? Did Christ come to you because you were full of glory? I must have this person in my church collection. Behold. You're out seeking votes. Filling the empty glory? Is that how you got Christ? Is that how you came across his grace? No, what happened? What happened? And that's what takes us to the servant. And this is one of the most incredible texts of scripture that exists. And anytime I try to preach it, I feel like I'm two feet tall. It's too big for me. I can't, I can't say it right enough. But we'll try. Because look at what we have here. This is where Paul wants the eyes of our hearts to look. 5 to 7, or excuse me, verses 5 to 11 is a song of praise to Jesus. Commentators and scholars are pretty unified that this is an ancient Christian hymn. So this is old school right here. But the fact that it's a hymn tells you something about the theology why do we sing songs like we sang this morning? Light of the world. You stepped out into darkness. Opened my eyes. Made me see. Beauty. That made this heart adore you. Or the, you know, the, the second verse of that song, doesn't it sound like this one? King of all days. Oh, so highly exalted. Glorious in heaven above, humbly 
You came. All for love's sake became poor. What's the difference between a formal theology and singing theology? When we sing it rightly, it's because it's hit our hearts. You've got to sing. And that's what this is. This is the richest, most epic, incredible theology in a song. And Paul wants the church to look here. And the whole thing is look at Jesus. It happens in two parts. Verses 5 to 8 are what Jesus did. And verses 9 to 11 are the Father's response. 5 to 8 are what Jesus did. And 9 to 11, the Father's response. And so now, on this road out of our struggle with empty glory and pride, this road taking us hopefully to a deep unity, Paul has had us remember the blessings that we share because, and here's the high point, look at the servant. So let's look. Verse 5, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Remember, he told the Philippians to have the same mind, and he said it twice. You need the same mind, the same inclination, the same attitude. Whose mind is that ultimately? It's Christ's mind. It was his attitude, his intention, his goal. And if you trust in him, his mind is your mind. Not in that you think identically and know everything like Christ does, obviously. It's ridiculous. But it's his attitude towards his people, which ought to be ours, which is ours in him. Have this mind. So it's theology, isn't it? But it's theology ingested. It's hit the heart. It's hit our inclinations. This is what we're supposed to get his mind. Look at his mind. Look at where he started, verse 6. Now, of course, when I use the word started, that's never quite the right word for Jesus because he's eternal. <laughs> but this, is, this song has a bit of Jesus' journey in it. Look at the beginning of the journey. Look at where he started, verse 6. Have this mind which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, stop, was in the form of God. Why do we say was? Because later Paul's going to talk about him being born. Now how many of you talk about your great, incredible life that was pre-birth? I've heard of people getting counseling for their past lives, but that's a totally different worldview and perhaps a bit of a sickness. We want to look here at Jesus' pre-birth experience. He has always been in the form of God. And the Greek here is very, caref is, is very clear and careful. He is, in essence, divine. He is truly God in every way and has been from all eternity. He's in the form of God. Wow. He's clothed in glory and honor. If you were to see him in that state, what would your response be? You'd melt like ice cream in the sun. Because you, you you'd be melted by his glory. Remember he pulled the... He pulled the the veil out of the way on the transfiguration. Do you remember that story? Let me see. Let me just let you see a little bit. Ah! Glorious. That's where he started on this journey. And yet, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. What does that mean? That means he had, has, deserved, deserves... Everything God deserves because he is God. He is equal to the Father. That's exactly what it means. He is equal and always has been equal to the Father. So by the way, enough of the ridiculousness that says early Christianity invented Jesus as a God hundreds of years later. It's patently false. This is a, this is a New Testament epistle coming out of 
early church history, quoting probably an earlier hymn. And the first things Christians are saying about Jesus is God. That's what Christianity is. He's God. But he didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped. What does that mean? It's not that he was, there is equality with God, I hope I could grasp it. No, it's, it's not what the language means. That means he has it, and uh, sometimes people use the idea that he didn't count equality with God a thing to be exploited. He didn't keep it to use it for his own interests. He could have said, I'm God, I'm in glory, I'm being worshipped, I'm just going to stay that way. To judgment with all my enemies. He would have been right to do that. He would have been just to do that. I'm staying up here to shine with glorious divinity. That is mine. He could have. But he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Verse 7. But what did he do, church? He emptied himself. And guess what that word emptied is? Kenosis. Kenosis. You remember? You're empty of glory. He's full of glory. You're striving vainly to fill it. He empties himself. He's, he's the opposite of what we are naturally. He emptied himself. How? It's almost emptying by addition. It is emptying by addition. How did he empty himself? Verse 7. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. <laughs> We're looking for votes. He is, he is taking the greatest demotion reality can ever experience. What is it like to go from glorified second person of the Trinity to... A human baby. You ponder the, the miracle of the incarnation and how he set glory aside. He didn't keep it for himself. He humbled himself to become human, fully human, born in the likeness of men. He added a second nature to his person. He became truly human. All the way human. Found in human form. Jesus of Nazareth. People walked with him, talked with him, ate with him. He slept when he was tired. He's human. Because he emptied himself. Wow. Look at where he started and look at what he did. He does the opposite of what we do. We're trying to fill ourselves vainly. He is emptying himself for others. And look at where he went. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death, on a cross. It would be one thing for God to become human. I'm, I'm shocked. It would be one thing for him to then say he wants to be a humble servant. I'm shocked. Are you shocked? Is it your hobby to be a servant to others joyfully? You're prideful because you deserve empty. No. And then him, he actually deserves it. And what is he doing? He's being a servant to the point of death. Even death on a cross. In Roman culture, the cross was too shameful even to be spoken of. It was vile. It was gross. It was only for the worst of the worst. It's for the trash of humanity. You don't crucify Roman citizens unless they're super treasonous. It just doesn't happen. It's too vile. It is the utter opposite of everything we consider glorious. He was displayed to all, naked, Dripping fluids, bleeding, mocked, asphyxiating on a cross. 
That's where our servant, the gloryful, eternal Son of God, went. For us glory-empty self-promoters, we who would be little gods seeking praise, wanting to control, the one who is equal to God did not cling to his glory, but emptied himself to fill us with himself. He took our emptiness so that we could have his fullness. He emptied himself so that we could be filled. He's our glory. He's our righteousness. He's our resume that says we're enough, we're okay, we're forgiven, we're accepted, we're welcomed, we're changed. We are gloryful in him. When you know you have his vote, you don't need all the other little votes anymore. He lived for you. He humbled himself and emptied himself for you. And he, through the cross, is your glory, your enoughness. Wow. Look at where he started. Look, he had all glory as the son of God. Look at what he did. He emptied himself. He could have exploited it. He emptied himself for others. Look at where he went. Death on a cross. By the way, what have we just been considering? Theology. Theology. I hope by faith, what's it doing to your heart? I hope it's melting you. It's motivating you. Look at what happens next, 9 to 11, the second part, how the Father responds. All the verbs in the first part are what Jesus is doing, and now we see what the Father is doing. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Just pause there for a moment. How did that exaltation happen? He goes from emptying himself, becoming human as a servant, even to a cross, dying in the grave, in the hole, as low as you can go. And then what happens? Sunday morning, he rises from the dead. In victory. Not long later, he ascends to the Father. He sits at the right hand of God Almighty. He's King of kings and Lord of lords. And that is his title. He has a name that is above every name. What is the name that's above every name? Yeah. What's his title? Christ. The name that is above every name is Lord. Jesus, of course, is Lord. The ultimate glorious one. The ultimate exalted one. There's no one better, more preeminent, more powerful, more wise, more beautiful, more worthy of praise. He's the top of the top. He's the best of the best. Jesus Christ is Lord. That's his name. This hymn Paul, whoever put it together, is referring to this text from Isaiah 45. Look what God says in Isaiah 45, 23. By myself I have sworn. That's big when God does that. By myself I have sworn, and from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me, what's going to happen? Every knee will bow. Every tongue will swear allegiance. And then you see this majesty in Philippians where the me has been more defined and declared. The triune God, the Father, is now making sure every knee will bow to whom? His Son. And who does, all, who does it all result in praise to? To the glory of? To the glory of the Father. What do you see about the nature of God here? And other-centeredness. Who's exalting Jesus to the highest of heights? The Father. And who is Jesus then glorifying as he is exalted? I, I messed that up. Who is the Father exalting to the highest of heights? You know what I mean. The Son. Thank you. And then who is the Son then doing it all in praise to and glory of? The Father. So within the triune God, there's this other-centeredness. 
Wow. Who's going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord? Everyone. Even people with coexist bumper stickers? Everyone. That's our theology. Who is going to, who is going to admit that Jesus is the resurrected Lord of all? Mormons? Muslims? Who, who's going to bow and swear allegiance? Who's going to say it? It's true. Everyone. Every knee will bow that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now, we got to be honest. Some will do it in despair and in anger. They're still bowing. His people will do it in joy and delight because of who he is to them. But they're all bound because of who he is. You know what this shows us? Did you see this roadmap of the person and work of Christ? The heights. Empties himself. A servant. Death on a cross. The lows. But then what? Explosion. To the heights. To the highest of heights. Every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It's the core of Christianity. It's the heartbeat of what we are. It's everything we believe. And yet, what is Paul doing with this diamond of theology? What is he doing with it? You guys need to be unified. It's a roadmap for how we live. What is it that motivates and guides a life of love together? It's theology. Not just a formal theology, but a heart-melting theology that sees who Jesus is and what he did for you and is changed by it. And then you want to praise that and live that out and follow it. Paul is showing us through the example of Christ that the way up is always first down. The way up is always first down. What did Jesus do to be exalted, name above names, explicitly to be seen this way? He came down. He went low. Then he went to the top. What is your conversion like? If you're a Christian today, what did God have to do to you first? He brought your heart down, didn't he? What did your heart have to realize? I'm a prideful, selfish, vainglory-seeking sinner in deep need of mercy. That's the first loving thing God did for you, if he did that for you. He let you see the reality of what you are without him. He brought you down, humbled you. And then when you were down in that low place, you cried out and said, Jesus, save me. Save me. And what did the Lord do for you? He brought you up. What name does he give you? You're a child of God. You're justified. You're made right with God. All your sins forgiven. You you're stand with his righteousness. You have his approval. You have his faithfulness. You have his steadfast love. He brought you low to bring you up. That's true for Jesus' example. It's true for our conversion. And it's true for community. Up looks like living lives worthy of the gospel with a deep unity. Wouldn't that be great? Wouldn't it be beautiful? Wouldn't it be sweet? Everybody would see, smell, hear Jesus when they came into contact with this kind of people. But what's the way to go up? You have to go down. You have to put aside the kinodoxa, the empty glory. You have to put aside the vote getting and look not just to yourself but look to him and how he fills you and gives you what you need and then don't just look to the interests your own interests but look to who else interests of others get your eyes on Christ and on to others will that be joyful does pride really give you joy does insecurity give you joy no Self-pity, you know what joyful is? When I forget myself and I look at Jesus with you. 
when I forget myself and I see people Jesus loves. We're free. I don't need all the little votes because I have the one that matters and what Christ has done. Isn't this what the New Testament teaches? Look at 1 Peter 5, 6. 1 Peter 5, 6 and 7. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may what? Exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. So friends, what do you think? What does theology have to do with love? Everything. Love is theological. But it can't just stay formal. It's got to hit your heart. So when unity seems impossible, where should you look? The servant. And when your heart is melted by him and what he's done, then the should will become what we share. Because we want to follow him and do as he has done. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we give you praise. There's nobody like you. To be so glorious and empty yourself to such depths. And that you would do that for me. That you would do that for us. Lord, I pray for anybody in here who has not humbled themselves before you. And trusted themselves to you as their Lord and Savior. And I pray, God, that today you would, you would show them your beauty and what you've done. And they would. They would humble themselves and look to you. Give themselves to you. Acknowledge their need for you. And that you would save them. Lord, that you would speak to them. That as they trust in you, they are forgiven. They are welcomed. They're yours. I pray for our, us as a community, Lord. That as we look at the beauty of Christ, that you would grow us in humility. And that that humility would foster a deep, loving unity that helps us walk in a manner worthy of what Jesus has done. We pray this in his name and for his glory. Amen. Thank you for listening. And we invite you to visit us Sunday mornings here at Fountain of Life Fellowship. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com.